All right, let's go James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. I know because I had my daughter rearrange them and make sure they were all nice and neatly placed uh, this morning. Uh, now, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really awesome important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing Him, filtered through the lens, understood through the lens of knowing Him. And if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, well then um, it just makes a lot of sense to be putting your nose in the Scriptures and watch Him work. Um, we're actually going to spend some time in a little bit talking about what I think is the second key reason uh, why God has given us uh, His Word, but we'll get to that in a moment. James chapter 1. Um, we have made it now to week number eight of our effort to walk through uh, the, the book of James together. Uh, I, I know some of you are wondering, uh, is, like, are we finally going to finish James chapter one this week? Is this, I mean, we've been in it since January. Is this, the, is this the light at the end of the James one tunnel? No, <laughs> it's not. We got one more week in us after today. Uh, after next week, we're going to take a few weeks off from James. We've got some other fun stuff that we've got planned for us. And, uh, uh, but then in late April, we'll pick all this back up again and hit the go button. Uh, and, um, well, and so chapters 2 through 5, i just give you a heads up. They move, they move way faster than chapter 1. Way faster. Uh, so we spent like nine weeks, or going to spend about nine weeks in chapter 1. Uh, Chapters 2 through 5, depending on how some things fall, are going to take us another 9 to 10 weeks. So like, we're like halfway through. You're welcome. All right? All right. Now, in case you're new, in case you're brand new around here, uh, James is uh, a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. It's brilliant how that, that works out, right? Uh, and it's written to God's people who had been scattered out from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, you've got this early church in the book of Acts, and they're all kind of gathered together in one place. Uh, but then God scatters them out of that one place to go do what he actually said to do, which is make disciples of all nations, right? To be his witnesses in not just Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. All right? And so uh, uh, James is written to God's people who had been scattered out from Jerusalem after persecution began to kind of ramp up against the early church. That's kind of how God scattered them out. And, and a lot of that initial wave had died down by this point. Uh, things had kind of begun to return to normal again. People are still spread out. They've begun to settle into these new places and even start new churches in these new places. Good churches. All right? uh, but new waves of trial would come and go and come and go. It's just kind of the world that they lived in. It's just the reality that they faced. Now, it's hard to address other things when trials and suffering and even literal persecution are the world that you find yourself living in. Like, you don't, when you write a letter to somebody and that's what they're dealing with, you don't just, like, not address that. You have to address that. And so that's what James does. He opens up the letter by addressing the elephant in the room first. He, re he reframes their understanding of what the trials in their life ought to be counted as. And he tells them to count it as the fullness of joy. 
That's a fun little way of thinking about trials. Nobody in our world likes to go, yes, that's exactly where I was wanting to go with my trials, the fullness of joy. But James makes the argument that they ought to account of their trials in that way because God is sovereign over those trials, because of better eternal things that God is producing through those trials, and even because God is clearly seen as the good and created giver of every good thing in the middle of those trials. But while trials are the elephant in the room that James has to address, trials are not the reason James wrote the letter in the first place. He's got to address it, but he addresses it so that he can move past that. So we've been dating this letter to the early to mid-40s A.D. So why in the world does that matter? Why is that important at all? Well, because on a historical timeline, that places it before what we would think of as a really, really important moment on the timeline, a a thing that we call the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council happens in Acts chapter 15, right? Acts chapter 15. Uh, God had actively been saving the Gentiles, the non-Jews, for a few years by this point. He'd been pulling them into the church and working them in. They'd been hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, being baptized, all those kinds of things. And so while the early church began with a singular cultural influence, the Jews, well, it was very, 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 very quickly becoming something more than just one culture. It's becoming a very multicultural thing. And whenever, this is just how the world works, whenever you've got multiple cultures all occupying the same space, especially when those multiple cultures are now supposed to be one part of, you know, just this larger faith family that's all supposed to get along and be happy with each other's presence. Well, that means that you've got to spend a lot of time working out very, very practical details of how life works. And that's exactly the position that the early church found itself in. The debate, the debate of the pre-Acts 15 church was do the Gentiles have to observe the Jewish identity and ceremonial laws in order to follow Jesus? Yes or no? In other words, did they have to become religiously Jewish before they could follow a very, very Jewish Messiah who did all those things, remember? Jesus did them all. He was perfectly obedient to the Jewish law. So does following Jesus mean that we got to do the Jewish stuff too? Do they have to hold to the Levitical diet? Did they have to, uh, uh, were they required to wash in ritualistic ways at certain times during the day? Did they have to observe the Passover and the feast days? Did they have to be circumcised in order to, uh, to be marked with the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Those are the questions, the very real world questions that had to be asked out loud and answered out loud. If you've never read the book of Acts for yourself in chapter 15, the leaders of the early church gathered back together in Jerusalem. That's why we call it the Jerusalem Council. They gather back together in Jerusalem after they've been scattered out and say they begin to hammer out the answer to this question. They ultimately decide that the answer is no. The answer is no. God was now saving a people for himself out of every culture, not just one distinct culture. And that while God was pleased and excited to work through the Jewish people for so long, the ceremonial law had met its completion and its fulfillment in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That was their answer. Okay, so why does all this matter for James? Because if timeline-wise we haven't made it to Acts 15 yet, then that means that there's this giant cultural debate swirling around. It's still going on. Just like in our own day, I don't know if you've noticed this, but everybody has an opinion about the big cultural issue. I mean, they didn't have Twitter back then to blast that opinion to their 30 followers, but everybody had an opinion. And so James writes this letter into that larger church culture that 
man, it's got lots and lots of ideas, competing ideas about what it means to practically and faithfully follow Jesus. He cares deeply about people actually knowing and following Jesus rather than merely claiming to know and follow Jesus. So James is going to talk a lot in this letter about faith, all right? Talk about faith, but, but not faith as some kind of vague, you know, assertion of beliefs, a, a mental assent to something. No, James is going to hold up what I would describe as an authentic faith that consistently produces specific and demonstrable things in a person's life. For James, faith doesn't stay static. It produces things. It has a real-world effect on you. It actually has a real-world effect on others around you. And so James is going to hold up and celebrate this kind of faith through a bunch of long-form uh, proverbs. All right? uh, last week we called them pearls on a string. All right? One little thing, and then the next little thing, and then the next little thing. And last week's pearl we saw was that uh, James began discussing the relationship between words and actions. But they're, they're, they're intrinsically linked. You can't, you can't separate those things. But it's time to grab the next pearl and admire it for a little bit. So you ready? James 1, James 1, starting in verse 22. James says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving who? Yourselves. Let's call time out there. You ever lied to yourself? Take that as a yes. Like you wanted to believe that something was true, even though the facts surrounding you told a very, very different story. Um, maybe it was trusting someone that should have never, ever been trusted. Um, you wanted so badly, like so badly to believe them. And even though past experience proved otherwise, and even though people who loved you well tried to warn you, you blew right through that and you refused to listen. Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of that? Or maybe you lied to yourself in a different kind of way. Uh, maybe you, you, you walked into a situation just absolutely sure of yourself, just telling yourself over and over and over again that this time it was going to be different. This time you were going to react in the different way and respond in the different way and you were going to do the thing. And then when that time came, it wasn't different at all. You did exactly what you always do. We've all had moments like that, right? Sometimes, sometimes those moments are, are little cute stories that you can share at parties. Sometimes those moments are tragic miscalculations that forever change your life or worse, change other people's lives. That's a fun day. James says that one of the ways that we deceive ourselves, that we lie to ourselves, is by hearing the word without doing the word. So what does that mean? What's James talking about? And, and what, what's this word that he wants to talk about? What's that? He's talking about God's Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, right? James says that you can make a steady habit of hearing the Word on a regular occasion, but if you're not putting that Word into practice, if you're not actively walking in obedience to God's Word, well, then you're deceived. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. The facts around you tell a different story. You could very well be most faithful of churchgoers, you could probably you know, claim that you've never missed a Sunday sermon and that you always bring your Bible to small group and that you have never, on any one moment in your life, you have never, ever, 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 ever given up on a Bible reading plan in the middle of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Don't worry, I ain't one of those people either. 
James says that you can surround yourself. At all times, you can surround yourself with the hearing of the word. But if you're not doing the word, then there's a fatal disconnect somewhere. There's a problem. But notice that James says, he does not say at all that you're deceiving other people. He says that you're deceiving yourself. This isn't hypocrisy as we normally think of it. Hypocrisy is the attempt to deceive others through inconsistency. This, this is delusion. This is delusion. Everybody else around you sees what's going on, but you don't see it yourself. Whether you thought through it or not, it's specifically this very hearing versus doing dynamic, this reality. Specifically this reality that leads us to have a time of response each week whenever we gather together to sing and pray and proclaim God's word. That's why we do that. Like, you want to peek behind the practical pastoral curtain for a second? I know most everybody else doesn't think about things the way I think about things. Let me let, me let you in on a little bit of Stephen Woodard's world, all right? A um, little trade secret for church services. We do not, and I mean at all, we do not have a time of response because we need some kind of snazzy way of changing the tone in the morning. Get us back out of the, the spiritualized lecture and into the coffee and pastry time. That's not what we're aiming for. That's not what we're doing. We're not, we're not looking for some transitional element that'll, that'll liven things up and bring us back to celebratory mode. No, no, we separate out our response time each and every week because according to James, rushing out of here right after the word is proclaimed is really, really, really dangerous. We dare not rush out of here. The entire point of that moment is to create a space where rushing on to the next thing is held off for just a couple more minutes. And we can't do everything for you, but we can give you three verses and a bridge, give you a little buffer for your good. That's what we're aiming for. But, but like, why is hearing without doing such a problem, though? Like, like I, I mean, I like to read a lot of books, physical books. Kindle books, audio books. Man, I'm surrounded with books. I read a ton. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I try to keep up on the news. I, I, I think I could probably compare myself to anybody in this room when it comes to the, to the consumption, the intake of information. I love to learn. Why is that a problem? Why, why, why is the Bible different? I, I can even point to some things in my life that, well, all of that, that dedicated effort to continue learning has probably produced some really, really good things in me. Why is the Bible different? Why can't I approach it the exact same way that I approach every other good piece of information around me? Well, James is going to answer that question. But he's going to do it by waxing proverbial here. He's going to come at it from a roundabout kind of way in verse 23. Look at it with me. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. So we could drop that little illustration pretty much anywhere we wanted to in the middle of the book of Proverbs and it would get lost, right? You'd have a hard time finding it again. It sounds exactly like the rest of the Proverbs. Pearls on a string. That's what we're talking about here. And so James alludes to uh, the reality of hearing God's word and, and he says that it does something that other forms of information, other things cannot do. 
And what is it? What is it? Well, 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 books and podcasts, other forms of media, they can all grow you in different ways. They can all instruct you in this way and instruct you in that way. God's word is different because God word, God's word actually examines you. Instead of you consuming something, it's measuring you. It reveals you as you really are. And the sad, painful truth that nobody likes to hear is that revealing you as you really are is never a pretty sight. You ever walked by a mirror, got that stray glance, and it completely obliterated what you thought you looked like? I'm definitely the only one. All right. Spinach in your teeth, zip in the middle of your forehead, profile that's a lot well bigger than the last time you noticed. We've all been there, right? James's point. James's point is that hearing the word of God is like holding up a mirror to yourself. It's like holding up a mirror to yourself, looking into it as deeply as you can for an hour, studying every little blemish, studying every little imperfection. But in failing to do what the word says, James says that it is then like setting that mirror back down and walking away with the spinach still in your teeth. That's his point. In fact, it's worse than that. By the time that you set the mirror down, James says that you've already forgotten that the spinach is even there. You walk on go about your merry little way, oblivious to the problem that the mirror so graciously revealed to you. What James is saying is that that man, his proverbial man, it's not, that man's not only foolish, that man has also wasted his time staring so intently in the mirror. What was it for? <laughs> Why'd you go to the effort? Who would be impressed by that? To chase after knowledge of God's word without obedience to God's word is just as foolish. It is just as much an incredible waste of your time. Who would ever be impressed by that? Oh, but Stephen, the Bible's so rich with beauty and it's, it's full of truth for life and for how the world works. I mean, even if, like, let's say for a second, even if somebody weren't changed on a spiritual level at all by the scriptures, it would, I mean, you still got to admit, it would still be incredibly valuable, so worthy to be admired. While it's so valuable historically and poetically and even just as a collection of the literature, uh, like, this book has changed the world. How can we not be impressed with it? How can we not love it? Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It is valuable. In fact, I, I happen to think, I hold to the opinion that you cannot exhaust how much praise the Bible is owed. You can spend the rest of your days celebrating this book and you will not run out of good things to say if you understand it correctly. I think we'll spend the rest of eternity plummeting the depths of the good thing that God has given us. Jeff read it earlier. Where it doesn't fade. I've dedicated my life to trying to faithfully, accurately teach this book. And I promise you, it has not been a boring life. I love this book. I'm enthralled by this book. I spend hours in this book. I am constantly amazed at, God, at how God has constructed this book. But let the Bible speak for itself this morning. Regardless of the unparalleled value of those other things, James, who carries a lot more authority than we do, James says that to miss out on this greater purpose of the word is to miss the entire point. Church, mirrors don't exist for the sake of enjoying the view. 
They don't exist for the sake of enjoying the view. They exist so that you can rightly see and understand what it is you're dealing with. The person that just enjoys the view, we got some other problems we got to deal with in that guy. And it's that second key purpose of the Bible that I alluded to earlier at the start of our time. While, while revealing himself through the word is the chief purpose that God has baked into the scriptures. Revealing our sin and just how desperately we need him to be our savior is second on that list. You want to make a list of the, the reasons why God gave us the Bible? That's number two. So we would see how much we need him and then come to him. It is a spiritual Mirror meant to tell you exactly what it is you look like. The Bible examines you. Just think through that for a second. To hold the mirror of God's word up without doing anything at all about the problems it reveals, that's, that's folly. It's incredible folly. It's a giant waste of your time. Okay, but, but how, right? Like how does... How does the Bible reveal our need for a Savior? I'm so glad you asked, because that's exactly the question that James answers next, in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so there's a lot of stuff in there that you've got to break down. For starters, James calls the law perfect. Hey, where have we heard that language before? Two places, actually, if you weren't aware. Not only is that how the Bible describes itself in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, it's also something that sounds an awful lot like the Apostle Paul. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of James and Paul are on the same team. Now, Paul talks about the purpose of the law uh, multiple times throughout the book of Romans. Uh, it's in chapter 2, it's in chapter 3, uh, but this part sounds a lot like what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Right? Um, we quoted that text at length a few weeks ago uh, when we talked about James 1.14. James and Paul had very similar things to say about the law uh, revealing or unveiling the true nature of our sin-bent hearts. Right? Uh, but in that text, I won't quote the whole thing, but in that text, uh, Romans 7 verse 10 says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, those who want to try to argue that Paul and James are, are, are not on the same team, well, they actually point out here, correctly so, uh, that James and Paul actually said different things about the law. James says that the perfect law brings liberty. While Paul says that the law promised life, but ultimately brought death. So, which is it, preacher man? Does the law bring liberty, or does the law bring death? The answer is both. The answer is both, and how the law applies to you, what it's going to flesh out of you, depends on who you are. Depends on who you are. In Romans... Paul is walking through a logical argument for the global need of the gospel. That's what he's doing in his overarching purpose for that letter. Uh, the global need of the gospel. And to do that correctly, to make that logical argument, Paul's got to answer multiple questions about why God chose to give the law anyways. If we, if we ultimately need Jesus, why did God give the law then? All right? That's his logical question that he's got to answer. Namely, are the Jews better off because they had the law when other people didn't have the law? Uh, you got one group of people who understand what it means to, to fall short, and you got all these other people who don't have the law and can't even know. So who's better off? 
Are the Jews better off? Paul's answer is sort of. Kind of. Yeah, maybe. While the law enumerates the, the sin that is already in us, it names it, it identifies it, the law also stands as a formal indictment against us, he says. That's Paul's big push in Romans. So if you've never read Romans for yourself, here's the Stephen Woodard summation of, from 30,000 feet from the first half of the letter. You ready? It's really, really simple. Paul argues that all men are separated from God because of the posture in our hearts that already exists of rejecting him as Lord and King. But then the law comes along and says, hey, you rejected him in this way, and you rejected him in that way. And oh, look over there. You also rejected him in that way. I guess we got a problem on our hands. That's Romans. So if that's true, If Paul's right, how could James ever come around and argue that the law brings us liberty then? I mean, it seems like it would be more accurate to say that the law binds us. We seem to be aiming at different things. It's because they are aiming at different things. James and Paul are describing vastly different postures before the Lord. For those separated from God by our sin, the law can only ever bring a pronouncement of a death sentence. It's what the law is intended to do. See see all of the countless ways that we have rebelled against the true king. See the long list of reasons why a good and holy God is good and right to pour out his wrath upon sinners. That's Paul's message in Romans. But for those who have been reconciled to God by the perfect righteousness and sacrificial death of his son Jesus, the law becomes something else to us. It becomes a mirror that examines us and exposes in us the places where our hearts and practice are inconsistent with what our God has already graciously declared us to be. It reveals the spinach still stuck in our teeth. Places where our hearts still cling to our own petty little kingdoms. It reveals the places where, despite the finished work of Jesus to save us and declare us as his own. The law reveals all of the places where we continue to wrap the chains of sin back around us like a security blanket because we want those more. And by seeing those chains as they truly are, by getting an accurate reflection of what they are and what they do to us, church, we can be set free. We can be set free. That, that is how the law ultimately brings liberty. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. James says that as a follower of Jesus, we are are now privileged to hold up the perfect mirror of God's word to us, to stare at it intently and to allow it to examine us and to reveal our true form, but to turn around and set the mirror down again as if it didn't reveal something you needed to work on, that's folly. What are we doing? Unburdened by what it exposed in us? you kidding me? That's the height of folly. Authentic faith protects us from folly because it leads us to the word and because it causes us to trust the examination that the word provides us, but also because it refuses to walk away unchanged by what it's seen. So do sinful places still lurking beneath the surface of our hearts prove that we're not saved then? I mean, we got all this junk. Are there some indicator that Jesus' work maybe wasn't so complete after all? Not even for a second. Not even for a moment. Your present sin does not negate what Jesus has done to pay the penalty for your sin and to reconcile you to himself. Period. 
It is his righteousness accounted to you that makes you blameless before the Father. Nothing that you've ever cleaned up for yourself. Period. Oh, but, but like if Jesus knew what was actually in me, like I don't know if he'd be my advocate. Like if he knew what was deep down inside of me, I don't think he would stand and say, I want that sinful heart for my own. Two things you need to learn this morning. One, if you are a Christian, Jesus didn't need the mirror. He knew you. He saved you already knowing about all the spinach stuck in the teeth. He, he knew every bit of it. Second thing you need to learn, he already knows about a lot of spinach you're not even aware of yet. He's not done digging. I promise you, he knows the depths of your sinful heart infinitely better than you do. It didn't slow him down. It didn't stop him going to the cross. He's not finished working on you. The question becomes, what will you do when that inconsistency is revealed? James says, the doer who goes to work is blessed in his doing. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God will bless the work that you put in to pursue righteousness. He loves it and delights in it. It doesn't mean that everything that you chase after will play out exactly like you hope. It doesn't mean that you'll always beat the sin in that moment or slay the doubt in that moment or stand victorious over blank in that moment. What it does mean, though, is that through the word, God will continue calling you deeper and deeper into a relationship with himself and that he will patiently and unceasingly cause you to take step after step after God love him step in spiritual maturity and personal righteousness. That's what he's calling you to. It means that he delights in your growth and he celebrates your growth. Not because you're earning something with him or maintaining your relationship with him, your place with him, but because he wants that kind of good for you. A good that begins with giving you himself, but continues every day until the day he brings you home, recreating you to be more like himself. So what do we do with this? How can we, re, we respond to God's word this morning? I mean, I mean, we definitely don't want to just rush out of here, right? That, that would be bad. Don't want to do that. Want to respond in the appropriate way. So what do we do with this? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think, and I think it's clear that, God is, that our God is never too concerned about our purely academic pursuit of spiritual things. Like, he's not impressed by that. To have your mind alone, hear me clearly, it, it is not good enough for him. He wants every ounce of you. Every ounce of you. But he has also been good enough to give you his word to see both the true depth of the problem and the true height of his solution. He reveals sin clearly and says, here I am, love me more. So maybe holding up the mirror and then doing something about it would be good and healthy and right this week. Go digging into the word and don't, don't run away from the ones, the passages you probably prefer to avoid. They're intended for your good. He wants better for you than that. I also know a guy who's about to give you three verses in a bridge so that you can have a moment to think about this before we rush on to something else. I'll be down front if you, if you want to talk. Let's talk. 
help you figure out what that response of faith looks like. But, but like, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? What about, what about you? Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes, you can. Uh, uh, here's, here's just the truth. The mirror doesn't paint a flattering picture of you right now. It, it reveals all of the problems. And without that reconciled relationship with Jesus on the basis of his own righteousness, that mirror of the law stands as an indictment against you. It's not just a posture problem. It's a posture problem that has fleshed itself out in a billion action problems. And the Bible sees every one of them. The Bible teaches that all men are without excuse, that because of our sin we are all separated relationally from God and that we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that place hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive in Christ by his grace. And the good news of the gospel is that despite what the mirror reveals, Jesus soaks up every ounce of the problem. God sent his son, put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that that I can't live and you can't live. No one here is capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin and to reconcile you to himself. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. What do we do with that? Why, Why does that change anything? Because the one who stands victorious over Satan, sin, and death now calls on you as Lord and King to respond to him. To come to him in faith and in submission. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Again, I'll, I'll be down there if you want to talk. Let's talk. Or maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. For some of you, man, you need to finally do something with the call to be a formal member of our church family. Maybe, maybe you got questions about what that looks like. Okay, well, questions are okay. We're not scared of questions. Let's do questions. Let's talk about it. But do something with what the mirror reveals. To walk away and forget is not just disobedience, it's folly. For others, it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Like you've been following him for a while now, but like for whatever reason, you just haven't done what he said to do. Sounds like a problem. Let's do that. You got questions? Okay, let's answer questions. But do something with what the mirror reveals. For others, maybe God's calling you to... to Make disciples somewhere far away from Nashua. And it's time to make that call on your life public. And, and let's go. Let me help you figure out what obedience looks like on that. And it'll be the best part of my day. Our God is good. And he continues to call you into knowing him more deeply. And he will patiently, and God love him, unceasingly cause you to take step after step after step in spiritual maturity and personal righteousness. So let's go. We see the reflection. Let's go. He delights in your growth and he celebrates your growth. Not because you're earning something with him or maintaining your place with him. Because he wants that kind of good for you. He's good like that. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Even when they reveal the stuff we don't like. Especially when they reveal the parts of me I don't like. But you have not given them, for those who know you, you have not given them to just cause guilt or shame. 
but to give us action steps for pursuing you well. So why would we not lean into that? I want to be free of the spinach in my teeth. Thank you for being good to us in that way. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Use the mirror of God's, of your perfect word to convict of sin, but also to call people into your kingdom this morning. Open eyes to see your goodness, to know and experience your beauty. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.